second half of this lecture looks at the the players of the IPO process and also the IPO process in detail. So in an IPO, who are the people that are uh, involved within an IPO? First, you have the issuer. An issuer is the person that has actually began or started the IPO. You have the key shareholders and management members. You have banks lawyers, auditors, IPO consultants, and investors. Two types of investor mainly, institutional investors and retail investors. And jumping back in regards to lawyers, you have the issuers lawyers and the banks lawyers. So what does an issuer do? An issuer is the applicant for the IPO. The issuer must be ready for the access to the capital markets. He must have a strategy and a business plan. He must be experienced in management. He must be thinking about corporate governance, accounting systems. He must be thinking about also the minimum volume that he wants to offer in the market and credit rating. Credit rating meaning the evaluation of a credit risk of a debtor, predicting their ability to pay back the debt. So the issuer has to consider these things. There are two types of issuer. One's called the public issuer, that's for debt, and there's the private issuer. Who are the key shareholders and key management members? The key shareholders are affected in various ways by an IPO. Key shareholders could be sellers in secondary offering. They could be contractual counterparties, such as customers and suppliers. They could be in existing shareholder agreements, related party transactions, and they could also be key participants in the IPO process. Key management members are also key participants in the IPO process, and they could have related party transactions. They have management themselves have to think about corporate governance and compensation packages in case of uh, failure to pay share dividends. And they're often also key shareholders. And they need to also retain and maintain that flow even after an IPO. What is the role of banks within the, the IPO? Banks serve as advisors. They could provide commercial advice with structure and timing. They can assist with the preparation of an equity story. They can assist with the documentation. They could liaise with the regulators. Liaise means to cooperate on a matter of mutual concern. And they could also coordinate the other advisors. The lead manager is the syndication among the banks, meaning he is the transfer something. He transfers something for the control or management by a group of individuals or organization. The book runner 
A book runner is somebody that's the primary underwriter in charge of the books. So the primary risk taker in charge of the books. And an underwriter is a risk taker. He's the insurer. And there's also one guy called the stabilization manager, which he looks after the process whereby market price of a security is manipulated in order to achieve a successful offer. So how does the issuer choose the banks? They look at thing, a thing called the beauty contest. So imagine there's a beauty contest and they look for the best team based on the people's profiles. They look on the best track record based on the total dollar value. They look for the most industry knowledge. So the one that researched the most, they look for most active trading support. So the based on the volume and the value of the trading, they look at the most relevant experience, such as the tombstones of completed deals. And they look at the best valuation based on the most attractive valuation analysis. Agreement with the banks require a special letter called the engagement letter or the engagement agreement. It defines the legal relationship between a professional firm and its client. The letter states the terms and conditions of the engagement. The underwriting agreement is the second document that the banks would actually need. It's a contract between a group of investment bankers who form underwriting group or a syndicate in new issuance. So first you have the engagement letter and then you have the underwriting agreement. The engagement letter is often signed before the underwriting agreement is finalized. The engagement usually sets the tone for underwriting agreement. An underwriting agreement will be discussed more detail in following sections. The lawyers. So there are several law firms that are involved within an IPO process. First is the lawyers of the issuer. Second is the lawyers of the underwriters. The lawyers of the issuer is the person that, the lawyers that take care of the, the primary request from the issuer. The lawyers of the underwriters. You also have domestic lawyers which look after the home jurisdiction of the issuer, the marketplaces so where they launch that specific IPO, and also the international lawyers, depending on the structure of the offering. So sometimes you might have cross-borders lawyers as well. The issuer's lawyers will advise on corporate and company law. So looking at the legal form, the suitability for listing, the corporate governance, the structure of the firm, the compliance organization of the firm, looking at things like capital increase, corporate resolutions. The issuer's lawyer, lawyers are going to help the issuer to draft the prospectus. The issuer's lawyers would participate in due diligence for legal market, management market, and financial market. The reason why you have the due diligence in these three areas is because they are reasonable steps taken by a person to avoid committing a tort or offense. The issuer's lawyer 
is also going to deal with the regulators, stock exchange, and other authorities, and they would assist in the negotiation with the underwriters. So to write up the engagement letter and the underwriting agreement and render legal opinions to underwriters. Render means to give without any implications. The bank's lawyers is going to review the prospectus. They're going to conduct the due diligence on legal management and financial areas. The bank's lawyers are going to draft the underwriting agreement and assist in the negotiations. The bank's lawyers will negotiate with other relevant documents such as legal opinions of the issuer's counsels and auditor's comfort letters. A comfort letter is a document prepared by accounting firm to assure a subsidiary company of its willingness to provide financial support. The bank's lawyer will also provide some legal opinions. Okay, auditors, what do they do? They audit the historical financial statements, such as adjustments. They audit the interim financial statements. They review the financial information in the prospectus. They circle around the prospectus and they prepare special reports on pro forma financial statements and projected financial information. They participate in financial due diligence and they provide a comfort letter to the underwriters. Once again, the recap of a comfort letter is a document prepared by accounting firm to assure a subsidiary company of its willingness to provide financial support. The IPO consultants review whether the issuer is market ready. What does that mean? Market ready means are you ready to be in the market at that certain point to generate this IPO? They're going to IPO consultants are also going to support their preparatory works, for example, to build investor relation competence and also develop an accounting system that meets the demands of the capital markets. IPO consultants would review the corporate strategy, business plan, and management processes. They would help to advise on the issue concept and enterprise valuation. So what, what, what sort of value or what sort of price should you value the IPO? And they're going to help prepare the fact book. The, the fact book is a, a book which compiles the equity story. It's a basis for the prospectus and the roadshow. The content for the fact book is, is uh, things such as the corporate strategy, the organizational structures and workflows, the market and competition analysis, the financial position, including a detailed presentation of capital requirements, the use of the funds and financials. So financials mean the projected income statement, cash flow statement, and balance sheets. So the fact book consists of the equity story with a lot of numbers, um, including all these financial information. So investors, there are two types of investors. There's one called the institutional investors, and they trade large volumes of securities. The example of large um, institutional investors are pension funds, banks, hedge funds, investment companies, trust managers, and insurance companies. They're huge investors. Retail investors are the second type of investors. 
there is an information asymmetry between the issuer and retail investors, meaning that the issuer knows a lot more about their company and they're not more about their financial information compared to the retail investors. But that's normal. So therefore, retail investors need more protection than institutional investors because institutional investors usually spend so much time to, in, uh, to figure out about the other person's firm and they would have more information. Now we're going through the IPO process in more detail. First, we're going to go through phase number two. Phase number two is preparation and structuring. So before taking a company to public, you have to choose the vehicle for the offering. You have to choose what you want to offer. You have to reorganize the various entities of the group. So that's why people go through a reorg. You have to spin off the business lines. Spin off means that you turn a subsidiary company into a new separate company. And you have to sell all the non-key assets which are non-essential. So these are the assets which are not used. You have to decide on the capital structure and the proportion of the stock to be sold to the public. Um, it's also a requirement to increase the issuer's capital. You would be required to review, revise, and terminate agreements if you go public, and you have to increase the issuer's corporate governance standards. But this takes time and buying lots and lots of management resources. So therefore, this preparation phase can take up to six months because you would really need to decide on every single problem that was mentioned. So three steps to get ready for an IPO. So step number one, you're going to um, think about um, related party transactions. So what does that mean? Um, there might be an issue. Issue is that uh, related party transactions may not be an arm length term. So it means that the business deal in which buyers and sellers act independently without one party influencing the other. So what that means is related party transactions may be dependent on one another, or it might not even be documented. So what does the, the firm have to do if there's related party transactions? They have to decide whether the, it, it is important to terminate such an arrangement. They have to document the transactions which shall take place. They have to establish adequ adequate pricing and other arm length terms, and they have to appropriately disclose transactions in the prospectus. And one shall not miss the intra-group transactions that need special scrutiny, in particular the case of centralized services if only a part of a group has taken public. Second step to get ready for the IPO is regarding the issue of the shareholder agreements. What's the issue? Are the existing shareholder agreements still suitable for the listed company? In particular, pre-IPO, private equity investors require many rights which would no longer be appropriate after an IPO. So because there are restrictions on transfer of shares, influence in shareholders and directors' meetings, and preferential voting and distribution rights. So what needs to be done? One has to decide whether to terminate the arrangements. One has to tie in with IPO-specific agreements with shareholders, in particular lockups. 
lockups mean that you 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 agree upon something and you lock it for, for a certain period of time and you don't change that agreement but don't forget shareholders bound by a shareholder agreement generally form a group under applicable takeover rules step number three for getting ready for the ipo one has to also consider the corporate governance standards because the corporate governance standards may not be in line with the market standard or market expectations. So what does one need to do if that's the case? One has to assess the corporate governance standards of the issuer. And one has to increase the corporate governance standards of the issuer. Excursus. So a very detailed discussion of a particular point is called an excursus. We want to look at the excursus of the corporate governance standards in Switzerland. In Switzerland, there's one thing called the home country rule, which, for example, the six, so that's a um, directive on information relating to corporate governance applies to all issuers who equity securities are listed on six stock exchange and whose registered office is in Switzerland comply or complain if an issuer opts not to comply if an issuer doesn't want to comply the rationale for that decision must be substantiated so it must be explained if you you either comply with corporate governance or you explain why you don't that's the rule in switzerland in the corporate governance report it is required by six directive on information relating to corporate governance so the corporate governance report is needed Next, you need a code of best practice for corporate governance. There's a self-regulation code promoted by Economie Suisse, which is a federation for Swiss businesses from all sectors of the economy. And however, this document is non-binding. So therefore, Economie Suisse published this uh, self-regulation code for best practices of corporate governance. But you can either comply with it or explain why you did not comply with it. Following are four focus areas of the code of best practice for corporate governance from Economie Suisse. First, they focus on shareholders. Because shareholders have the final decision within the company, companies should endeavor to facilitate the exercise of shareholders' statutory rights. So shareholders really matter, and companies should ensure that general shareholders' meeting is used as a forum for communication so that it is well-informed and is charging its function as the highest corporate authority. You see how important shareholders are? Companies should facilitate the participation of shareholders at general shareholders' meetings by clearly setting dates and time limits well in advance. The board of directors should also take steps to contact shareholders in between the general shareholder meetings. Secondly, board of directors or looking at management in particular. Board of director, which is elected by the shareholders, is responsible for the strategic direction of the company or group. The Swiss company law lays down the inalienable and non-transferable primary functions of the board of directors. Inalienable means not subject to being taken away from the possessor. Membership of board of directors should be well balanced. Board of directors should plan for the succession of its members and ensure that members receive continuing education. 
Board of directors should determine the procedures appropriate to perform its function. Each member of the board of directors and executive board should arrange his personal and business affairs so as to avoid, as far as possible, conflicts of interest with the company. Board of directors should regulate the principles governing the ad hoc publicity in more detail and take measures to prevent insider dealing. Continuing. The principle of maintaining a balance between direction and control should apply to the top of the company. The board of directors should provide a sort of a system for internal control and risk management suitable for the company. The board of directors should take measures to ensure compliance with the applicable rules. The board of directors should set up an audit committee. The audit committee should form an independent judgment of the quality of the external auditors, the internal control system, and the annual financial statements. The board of directors should set up a compensation committee. The committee should see uh, define, defining the remuneration policy the pr primarily at the um, top company level. And the board of directors should also set up a nomination committee. So. Board directors need to set up three committees, audit committee, compensation committee, and nomination committee. Next, corporate governance in Switzerland also cares about auditors. Auditors in particular and group auditors should comply with the guidelines on maintaining independence applicable to them. To disclose, to disclose, companies should disclose information on corporate governance on its um, um, annual report. Next, we're going to jump into the topic of due diligence. Due diligence. What's the meaning of due diligence? It's the reasonable steps taken to avoid committing a tort or offense. It's an analysis of the issuer and the securities in order to in case of the underwriters, find out all material facts about the issuer and the securities, establish a due diligence defense to any possible investor claims. In case of an issuer and its directors, uncover material information which needs to be disclosed in the prospectus. So there are four types of due diligence. One's called the financial due diligence, legal due diligence, Thirdly, management due diligence. And lastly, accounting tax due diligence. Due diligence means you do things right and prevent from breaking the law. What is the scope of due diligence? There's a legal due diligence, which covers all the legal documents and areas such as corporate assets, financing, material contracts, regulatory, tax, human resources, litigation, and also the materiality thresholds. Materiality is the extent or magnitude to which one could report um, sort of falsely. Business due diligence is also important because it covers the issuer's business and financial condition, performance, strategy, projections, business plan, material contracts, risk, strengths, and weaknesses. 
there's also special areas depending on the nature of the business of the issuer on real estate, natural resources, and intellectual property. There's a disclosure opinion regarding due diligence. Disclosure opinions are also referred to a disclosure letter or in USA, it's called US Deals 10B5 Opinion. What is it about? It's based on investigation of specified facts. It addresses the accuracy and the completeness of the prospectus. And to whom is it addressed to? It's addressed to the underwriter. And who gives the opinions? Usually two disclosure opinions. So there's one from the underwriters council and the issuers council. What does this due diligence disclosure opinion say? It says that based on certain specified inquiries, nothing has come to council's attention indicating that the prospectus contains any misstatements of material facts or any material omissions. In the due diligence, there's also a letter, a special letter called the comfort letter. A comfort letter is the business document that is intended to assure the recipient that a financial or contractual obligation with another party can and will be met. The comfort letter is assured by a parent company. And the comfort letter is to reassure that a subsidiary company of its willingness to provide financial support. Next, we jump into the next IPO phase, which is marketing, pricing, and allotment. There's one thing called the Google's Dutch, Dutch auction. Um, this is where risks are bared by investors and do not always correlate with. So Google's perspectives contains the following risk disclosure. Google's perspectives. It warns the public offering price may have little or no relationship to the price that would have been established using traditional indicators of values, such as future prospects and those of other our industry in general, our sales, earnings, and other financial operating information, multiples of our earnings, cash flows, and other operating metrics, market prices of securities and other financial and operating information of companies engaged in activities similar to ours and research analyst views. So in Google's perspectives, we understand that the price could be volatile and there are risk disclosures. So the risks are bared by investors and do not always correlate with future prospects of company and industry sales and earnings and other financial operating information, earnings, cash flows, and other operating metrics, market prices and securities, and research analyst views. Because risk of a, of a company's in the stock market is different from the risk that's perceived in a, in a private market. And we should also understand that the trading price of our class A common stock in the, for Google could vary significantly from the initial public offering price. Therefore, Google warns us to not submit a bid in an auction process for an offering unless we are willing to take the risk of the stock price that, that could decline significantly. So pricing and allotment, um, there's one thing called fixed price underwriting. It means individual or firm takes on the financial risk for a fee 
there's another thing called book building. This is a process of determining the price at which the IPO can offer. And there are two types of auctions. One's called the Dutch auction and the other one's called the American auction. The process of price discovery involves generating and recording investor demand for shares before arriving the issue price. So what is a fixed price underwriting? It's when underwriters purchase securities from an issuer at a fixed price and underwriters take the full placement risk. In an IPO, hardly ever any fixed price underwritings. Fixed price underwritings are a common form of underwriting arrangement in Switzerland bought by underwriters at a fixed price. And book building um, takes, part, takes part in two different phases. First is the pre-marketing phase and also the subscription phase. In the pre-marketing phase, underwriters ask a selected institutional investors to provide non-binding price. Price range calculated based on these prices and the underwriter's own valuation of the issuer. And there would be a price range which, are, which is published in the preliminary prospectus. In a subscription phase, retail investors have to look at the binding subscription at a price which will be fixed at the end of the book building. And institutional investors only give indications of interest, which can be changed throughout the whole subscription phase. Book building um, could be at the end of the subscription period when the subscription price is set and when securities are allotted to investors. In book building, there's also a minimum price and setup. It is not, the minimum price and setup is not in an IPO, but possible for a capital increase. And the mechanic works as follows. The underwriters promise a minimum price, and the minimum price can be adjusted upwards depending on the book building setup. In the next one, we're going to talk about Dutch auctions and American auctions. Thank you for listening.